I've uh, been reading, as I've mentioned, I think last time I spoke, uh, history, and I've been reading the 1776 by David McCullough, who talks about Washington, that fateful year where things were heading south for the nation, even though we declared our independence. I, I'm just amazed. It's, it's really good to study the history of, of some people and the character about them. When I was amazed with Washington as he faced truly a situation that looked like there was no hope for this country. I don't think people realize it. You read some of the historical truths where you see General Washington facing a military which was always outnumbered. His armada of ships that were always out on the coast. Soldiers who often had no clothes and even no shoes in the, in the winter and they would talk about I won't get into it. It's kind of gross. I mean, it just was, they were just in the worst of conditions. They often didn't have weapons. At times they would have no ammunition and many times would just have clubs. They were facing constant desertion. It was a volunteer army. There was inexperienced leadership with regard to generals, colonels, and lieutenants. They were facing disease. Often they would have a third of their army who were ill. They had situations where they just didn't even have food. They were hungry. And it always looked like it was going to be kind of their last day. And, and yet Washington, as you read about people who would look at him, talked about how he persevered. He trusted in a sense that through his acts, there would be some sense of intervention. And, 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 he, and they often would remark that he would not be looking to see in, in, in his heart and mind. He wouldn't look at things as, as he had hoped they would be, but he looked at what they really were. He had this sense of honesty. And this unflagging sense of hope, even at times, um, he would be in his own, alone and, and by himself, which happens in leadership. And, and yet, he would come out with this resolve and this face that gave hope to his to his army. And at times, God would step in and the weather would change remarkably. And they would sense the providence of God. What I want to share with you is you may be in situations in your own life. You may be looking at things in a business. You may be looking at a person that you love. You may be in a connected with a organization or you may even look at our nation and you may see it spiraling downward and downward and downward and how do you respond to that kind of spiral when we get to the book of Micah that's kind of what is happening here when we get to Micah chapter 6 verse 9 and we follow that through chapter 7 verse 8 yes we will be looking at a lot of verses and you think I normally speak fast what you will find is Three things, beginning at verse 9, is this intervention. God steps in. There are times in situations where we're called to step in and to share the truth. You will go on and you'll see as you get to chapter 7, verse 1, this incredible sense of honesty. We are a people who are fraught with denial because it's so hard to look at the situations we're involved in and to be truly honest with them. And yet you look at this and God is so completely honest. And so is Micah. And then this last verse, verse 7, is, is the one that is kind of a hinge verse. It's a very important verse. It, it takes you from what's going on to the very last part of the book. And it, it's all about Micah's hope. 
And I really want to talk about what does that hope look like in situations that seem to be desperate. Well, if you look at this, you'll, you'll begin and you'll, be, you'll see in verse 9, it starts in this way. And, and here's the picture. Micah has been preaching and talking about God and the need for these people to see their oppression, especially the leadership in, in, in this country as he has been talking to specifically Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom. They have seen the northern kingdom continually walk away from God. They have seen the same things that are happening here that they can't see in themselves happening in the northern kingdom. And they see the northern kingdom fall. And here is Micah coming for God. And here is the first thing that happens often in desperate situations. There is an opportunity possibly for you to step in and to intervene and to speak. That's what happens here in this situation. Micah begins it. And, you, and here's the picture. It's as if he's in the marketplace where people are stealing from one another. Through the measures that they use, through the weights that they're using as they are in trade. Or in the courtroom, there is in the courtroom a person who is bringing their cause and they're crying out for justice and those who are in leadership and power and have affluence and influence and everything else are creating loopholes so that this person and his situation, his family, whether he's losing his farm out in the country or, or whatever is going on, he is at a place where justice isn't occurring. And Micah walks into the marketplace, possibly, or he walks into the courtroom, or he could, in our sense, walk into Congress. It would be as if he stood in the midst of those people as they're going about their business, and he says, the voice of the Lord. That's how he starts. God is crying out to you. Try that in the marketplace. You try that in the grocery store. Go into a courtroom. Imagine that in our halls of Congress. But that's what happens right here. What is very interesting is in chapter 2, verse 3, and in chapter 3, verse 5, you will find the typical way the prophet would come in would be, Thus says the Lord. So he's intervened before by saying, God is calling to you. Thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. This time, it has become to a place where it is so desperate that he, he shouts out these words. The voice of the Lord. It's almost like this thunderclap as he says it to get their attention. Micah employs what I call this just unique show-stopping call of attention. If you... If you understand, and they did in that day, when the voice of the Lord was said, it, 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 the voice of God, when it would speak, had power and authority. It had the ability to take that which wasn't and make that happen. He could create something out of nothing by his very speaking. When he said, let there be light, there was what? Light. They're aware of the Psalm of David. I'm sure they had sung this song. Verse 3 of Psalm 29 says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord, verse 4, is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic, verse 5. The voice of the Lord breaks cedars. The voice of the Lord breaks into pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. Verse 8, the, Lord, the voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all who hear the voice of the Lord, says David, cry glory. That might get your attention. 
That's what's happening here. Let me share with you the structure of what happens in verses 9 through 16 and just take a moment to, to share this with you. What has happened is you have these people who have, um, their fathers have made a covenant and a contract with God. They said that they would follow God. They would be, because God took them out of slavery and, and took them out of oppression and met them in their time of need. God made a contract with them and said, you live that way with everyone. So that even when aliens come in your midst, that you share with them what you've experienced. You've experienced my love, so do the same. But now years later, here they are and they have people, not only just people who are aliens, but especially their own countrymen, their own, their own neighbors. And they're cheating them and they're, they're taking from them and they're dealing with them in ways that are far from what they experienced themselves. And so here's the structure. He addresses them in verse 9. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city. And then he little parentheses. And to fear your name is wisdom. To all of you who are listening and who are in a humble place, walking humbly with your God, really loving mercy and and seeking to act with justice, you will experience the fullness of God. This is wisdom, is what he says. And then he says, heed the rod, the one who appointed it. It's a difficult translation. It could actually mean also this. Listen, tribe, in the assembly of the city. So what he does, he addresses the city, and he says to the city, those who are present as he's in the marketplace or in the courtroom, He says to you, and then he says to the tribe, all of Jerusalem, Judah, I want you to hear this message. This is for you. God is stepping in right now. And then he makes these statements, verses 10 through 12, the accusation. This is God speaking to his people. And he makes and asks two questions. And the questions are interesting because the questions demand an answer. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures? And the short ephah, which is accursed? Ephah was just a dry measure that, that they would use. And so when people would bring in their grain or wheat and they would measure it on this, they would always measure it less than what it was really valued. Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, and with a bag of false weights, so that when a person would come and when he, when he wanted to make more money, he would use a lighter weight. And when he wanted to um, make money another way and he was selling something, he would use a heavier weight. So he was always gaining. You were always cheating people. The basic core of what's going on here is dishonesty out of greed and a sense of arrogance and the desire to deceive so that you could get ahead. Because they really believed that what really brought them joy and what really gave them peace was the material things or, or the things that they in their own strength could bring about so that they would experience a sense of fulfillment. And so he asked these questions, should I, should I, am I, shall I? And the obvious answer is, of course not. And then he says, your rich men are violent. It's a, it's a term used often in the courts. It's not, it's not so much the idea that they're beating you up. The idea is that by the very things that they're doing, they're destroying you, they're harming you, they're hurting you through their dishonesty. So that he says her, her people are liars and their tongues speak deceitfully. You can't trust anything coming out of their mouths. So verses 13 through 15 is really a pronouncement of God on judgment. So he's addressed them, he accuses them, and now he says, here's the judgment. And what I find is really interesting in God's word is is it speaks about the fact that God actually intervenes and actively does this. But what I also find in God's word is our own choices, our sin, create the same consequences. So he speaks about God's activity, and yet the activity is a result of our natural course. And so he, he says, therefore, 
I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You'll store up but save nothing because what you save I will give to the sword. And then in verse 15, you plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the olive on yourselves. You'll crush grapes but not drink the wine. And then in verse 16, he just basically recapitulates the accusation and the, the judgment. You've observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house, and you have followed their traditions. It's the only time that he mentions kings except for in the first verse of Micah, which is really just a statement that Micah, ruled, Micah spoke or his, was a prophet during these reigns of these kings that he mentions. But these kings are kings from the northern country, from, from the ones that they were looking at, and they would watch them, and they would with a sense of, I can't believe they live like this. I can't and they were doing the very same thing. And so he mentions Omri because Omri was the king who made a path and made a contract with a city called Tyre. And the contract was this. His son Ahab would marry this king's daughter Jezebel. And according to Scripture, Jezebel was a woman who was so opposed to God. And what happened is he made the path. And it then goes on to say that Ahab followed the practices of what his father had done. So that's what he's saying here. You guys know this. You see it. This is your accusation. You're doing just what is, you heard those your sister to the north has done and shouldn't do. And then he brings condemnation. Therefore, I give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nation. So Mike accuses them of dishonesty for their false use of me- their, the false Measures that they're using, verse 10, the weights that they're using that are false, verse 11. And then because the city's elite, the powerful, the wealthy, the affluent, the influenced, use false speech in their courts, verse 13. Gives the two questions. He basically says, a God like me, he asks these questions, a God who is righteous must act against this. Because God cannot turn his back on the poor, the oppressed, and the vulnerable. And then he says, here's a condemnation. And I think it's interesting. He says, therefore, and you could almost put these lines in there. Therefore, on my part, on my part, I will do what is right. He says that he will frustrate them in verse 15. Because when they go to eat the harvest grain in the spring, and they're looking for that spring harvest, it won't provide. It won't satisfy. And he will frustrate them because they look for the harvest in the fall, which is the harvest of grapes and olives. And if they press it, it wouldn't give the oil or the juice. And the sustainer of creation, he says, will not sustain those who denied sustenance to their neighbor. That's the picture he paints. And the whole point of it is that God intervenes. That's why he says the voice of God. That's why he asks those two questions that expect an answer. Of course not. God will step in when people act like this. Not maybe immediately, but in time, that'll happen. And therefore, verses 16 and verse 13 and 16, God does step in through your own disobedience, he says. When you made this contract with me and I called you out of this, I said I'd bless you. But through your disobedience, as you walk away from me through the dishonesty of your own soul, then I will bring about the very curses, the very curses that I said here will actually occur in your life. Now, I've been involved in a number of interventions. I had my first intervention in, 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 
when I was a, a pastor about 33 years of age, and I remember sitting down with this family, and, and things were getting so bad because the, the father and husband, due to alcoholism, was drinking so much that it was destroying the business and destroying their home. And I remember how scary it was for everybody. And they sat down and out of love, they created this picture of, and they talked about how they loved this person. They created this whole opportunity so that there wouldn't be shame. And then they spoke the truth and, and the person was in tears. And, and I, you know, I so going, this is great. I see things change. But the person after he broke down in tears, walked out of the room, came back in angry and said, I have no, I'll have nothing of this and walked away. And I just remember thinking to myself, oh, what a, oh, it was such a bummer. But then I've been involved in ones where, uh, where people have actually been confronted with that love and they've heard the truth and they've responded. There are times that God allows for us to come into places where we see things spiraling out of control. And I just want to encourage you. It is very difficult to get the courage... I can tell you out of my own experience, it's very difficult, whether it be someone, and I don't, folks, it's not about alcohol addiction. It's just about any time a person is doing things that is creating harm. It could be your husband or your wife or your child or your parent. It could be a person at work. I don't care where it is. But there are times that God will call you to step in out of love and to share what needs to be shared. And all you're responsible to do is to share that truth. And you just don't know how people respond. And I have to tell you, the process of praying about how to do it is just as important, if not important, than the actual sharing. God, what do you want me to do? How do you want to be in this? What is it that I'm supposed to step into? For God here, it was a matter that he needed to step in because as he saw what was going on and he saw this unwinding, he knew that he had to step in and he said things again and again to these people. And in this case, it often fell on deaf ears. But what's really interesting about this is you go to chapter 7, verse 1. God is incredibly honest. He knows that our sins sow seeds that will lead to death and corruption and other things such as that. And that's what he sees here. In fact, if you begin in verse 1, it's, it's Micah and God almost as one saying, What misery is mine? It's literally, Woe is me. And he, he makes this statement, I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. It's this interesting parallel. If you go back to 14 and 15 of chapter 6, it's this idea that what you have occurring here in 14 and 15 is that they are planting these things, expecting to eat it, and they don't feel satisfied. This is what's going on with God. He planted these people. He brought them out. He gave them his love. He showed himself to them. They experienced his love. And as he expected this vineyard, these people, that at some point they would be the kind of people who would know his presence and and understand his love and feel his love. And they would be the kind of people because of what they experienced. They would do justice and they would love mercy and and they would begin to walk humbly because they understood that what they've experienced is the hand of God in their life. And he looked at it and he didn't see any fruit. And then he goes on and he says what happens in these kind of situations as a a person becomes dishonest in in themselves, 
and they have a lack of integrity, that lack of integrity creates a disruption of trust. And the foundation of trust in which you have a relationship on, that foundation as it gets broken and gets shattered, the whole structure falls apart. And so he's now looking, if he goes through it, he's very honest about what's going on. He stepped in, he's intervened. He's intervened on a number of occasions. Now he intervenes with his great amount of, of energy and clarity as he could, the voice of God. And he says that, and now he's honest. And, he, and you hear the heart of God. God never comes into a situation. He does not come into your life when you're stepping away from him, angry and upset because he hates you. He is no different than a good parent who loves you so deeply that his heart is grieved and he sees the steps that you're taking are going to lead to a, a situation where there will be greater pain in your life. And so he steps in and out of total honesty, he cries out and he says, my heart, woe is me. I'm in misery as I look at what I hoped would happen and it's not happening. And I step in to talk to this and I see it and I hear what I see is going to happen. So he lays it out in these verses. And he describes a total breakdown when trust is broken. When integrity has departed. First, he says there's a breakdown of morality. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. In no society, folks, is ever entirely upright and godly. In all society, there are always some evil individuals. But in a well-functioning society, the evil is suppressed due to the good character of those who lead and who give direction. So that when I was reading this book about Washington, what was amazing to me is they had a number of occasions when there was these rascals who would do these horrible things, and yet because of the character of his heart and others around him, it suppressed it. And when there's that kind of character, and those who are of that character are prominent and rule, whether it be in a home or in a business or in, in a school system or in a land, that evil suppressed. But in times of moral breakdown, it gets inverted. And evil triumphs. And the good is driven out, is what he says. So that he goes on in verse 3 and he says, Both hands are skilled in doing evil and the ruler demands gifts and the judge accepts bribes and the powerful dictate what they desire and they all conspire together. There's a breakdown now in, in, in the nation's leadership. And the picture is really interesting. It's twofold. If you go back to verse 2, he says, All men lie in wait to shed blood. They're hunters who prey on their own people. And then he goes on and he says, They're also like they're like hedges, verse 4. The best of them is like a briar, or the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The idea, not only do they prey on people like hunters, but now like hedges, they obstruct the very justice that they were called to, to give. And then he makes a statement. The day of your watchman has come. It turns now to Micah speaking. The day of God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion, which happens when there is this kind of distrust in any kind of situation. When integrity isn't there, confusion reigns. If you're in a confusing situation, it's because there's a lack of integrity at some point. And it leads to the third area of breakdown, which is the fundamental building block of all society, and that is the family, where he says the most fundamental building block here falls. Do not trust a neighbor or put confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. The one who you hold in your arms, your spouse. 
For a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law, and against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the members of his own household. Paul warns us in 2 Timothy, he warns about it in Romans. There's this disintegration when there's a lack of trust and integrity begins to fly out the window and the fact that those who are evil begin to rule so that the good is no longer suppressing the evil, but it's turned around. Now, I'm sure all kinds of things might come to your mind and you're thinking about, well, yeah, I can see this with my nation. I can see this in this situation. I can see this here. Maybe you can see it in a relationship with someone you dearly love and you see the lack of integrity and you're beginning to pray about God. Am I supposed to intervene? What does that look like? Or God, what does it mean for me to truly be honest? Because maybe even this is difficult to hear because what happens so often is the very things that drive us for our own sense of security is not that we trust in God and we do what we know is right and speak what is true and take the courage to do that no matter what the result is, saying it doesn't matter about this person's anger. It doesn't matter about this person's response. What really matters is that I do what is right. And it's really possible to lose hope and to feel despair. But what's really amazing about the person who has their hearts resting in God, like he says, is that God gives you incredible wisdom to work these things out and he stands beside you and he works in you and he protects you as you go through. It doesn't mean you don't experience difficulty, but God is with you and you do not lose hope. So when you come to verse seven, I love Micah's response because you would expect him to go, oh, woe is me and get to seven and go, I give up. Right. But he says is this. But as for me, I just keep my eyes on the Lord. I just keep watching for the Lord. I wait and hope for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. When Micah looked at the decline, he was overwhelmed. But when he looked at God, he felt empowered. When Micah watched and waited for God's intervention, he did so with this sense. He did not do it just merely saying the day of God is coming. I guess it's all going to hell in a handbag. And you know what? I can't do anything. Despair. And and I'm just going to tell people about God, but I'm not. He didn't do that. I um, had the opportunity this uh, Friday and Saturday this week to to go. um, Another ministry sent me to this ministry to hear some of you may know of Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point Ministry. He's got a TV show, a radio program. And so I had the opportunity down in Florida for a day and a half just to, to take in his stuff. And he's, he's known for a New York bestseller, What in the World is Going On? It's all about the end times. And then I had the opportunity to hear the preview book, The Coming Economic Armageddon. And I'm going to tell you something. It, it was sobering. And I sat there and I listened and he, he shared about, you know, how things are just unwinding and, 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 and was able to, through prophetic truth, explain exactly what's going on. And it just at a point I felt despairing. And at a certain point, he turned the message and he, he talked about God and his hope and that we have a kingdom that's coming. And there's this king who's going to set up this reign and this reign is going to take and lead us to the place where we know and see the face of God. And we live in his love and we have this message and we need to tell everyone about this message. And I got to tell you, that's true. That is such a wonderful truth, isn't it? To know this, that no matter what's going on, no matter how far this world and all that happens heads south, there is a God who has a better plan for us for eternity. And I was so excited about that. And yet at the same time, my heart really grieved when I listened to this. 
Because I feel in many ways, the evangelical church is almost schizophrenic. And what I mean by this is we look at the world and we see the things that are in it and we proclaim this message and we put our hope in what's to come. And in many ways, we feel this sense of despair because that's what I was thinking. And you almost feel helpless as if you can do nothing except for wait. But then you have a whole other group that, that, that rejects Bible prophecy and all that and says, you know, it's, we've heard enough of that, we've heard about that all our life. And they just say, you know what, we need to feed the hungry, we need to help the poor, we need to do this, we need to love mercy. We need, and, and, and I have to tell you, I feel the church is schizophrenic. The Word of God, the Word of God never says that we do one or the other. Constantly says we do both. Mike is a perfect example he didn't throw up his arms in passive resignation and go, oh, yeah, I just, you know, God, maybe someday you're going to come and set this thing right. And I'm just going to go. He actually continued to, to teach and to tell the truth. But he also went about and he did what was right and good in that very culture that he lived in. I heard this story um, this last week that was interesting. This man told about how so often we are looking for the big trophy when what often we should be doing is just looking for our personal best. And he illustrated it by saying, I have a daughter. She has cerebral palsy. When, when she had that at a young age, I just, you, you know, my wife and I, we grieved. What, what will she be able to do? And as she grew up and as she got to her junior high years and she was able to do more than what they ever thought, she comes to that point in high school in those years where she wanted to run cross country. And cross country is kind of a neat sport because it's not like track or some others you run a short thing and you and, and you try and get this trophy it's not that there isn't a trophy at the end but for most cross-country runners their desire is just to beat their own personal best it's just to do the best they can do and he said that she wanted to go off cross-country team so she and he went to the coach to talk about it and the coach said well you'll, you'll never finish a race but I'd love for you to be like a trainer or you could run the time clock with her. And she just said, no, I want to I want to run. So he said, OK, I'll help you, honey. He said she ran every race, every race she ran. She did better than the race before with her own personal time. She wasn't worried about the trophy at the end. She knew she'd never get that. He said that she finished every race she ran. He said that was so exciting about it was that. As they would stand there, she would be just faithful to do what she was running to do, and they would be faithful to stand there and, and watch and wait and cheer her on. And it would often happen that the time clock would be taken down, all the stuff around it would be taken down, people would have left, and they would be the only ones there, and darkness would even actually be coming on, and she would be finishing the race, and she would do better than she did the time before. So that in her senior year, she was made captain of the team. And as captain of the team, what happened was, because she was constantly doing better and she was finishing the race. She was faithful to do the good that she knew that she needed to do in her own heart. It eventually inspired others to do far better than they ever would have done, even some won trophies. And I look at us and I go, what Micah tells us is this, 
that there is a God, the day of judgment is coming, we will see his face and praise God for that. And let us tell as many people as we can the need to repent and to come and to know him and to walk in the power of his life. But let us go out and do all the good we can because we're just as a church, as a people, as individuals faithful to do the right that is before us, to love mercy, to do what is good and to walk humbly with our God. And we have to do them both. And um, I'm just going to share this little last thing that was so exciting to me about the whole book of Micah. That's what Micah did. He just did it day in and day out and had no idea whether there would be a change in the heart of anyone. But he did it because he knew it was right. And when you read 2 Kings chapter 18 um, through chapter 20, I encourage you to read it, 2 Kings 18 through 20. During the reign of the last king that he was serving under, Hezekiah, Shalmaneser of Assyria went to the northern kingdom, destroyed the capital of Samaria, deported all the people. Eight years later, Sennacherib, Shalmaneser's successor, attacks the southern kingdom of Judah and Hezekiah and causes them to pay a tribute. At one point, when it looks like the whole kingdom will fall, Hezekiah Here's the message of Isaiah and Micah. And as he's reading the letter from Sennacherib, who says to him, Do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Syria. Don't you realize what this king has done to every other country? It says that Hezekiah spread the letter out before the Lord and he received an answer through Isaiah that the city of Jerusalem would not be destroyed, Judah would not be overrun, that this this general Sennacherib and his army would be destroyed in the next day it was. And there was a revival for a period of time in that country. But Micah gets no mention in Scripture in Second Kings about it. It's all about Isaiah. But then if you continue to read the story later of Jeremiah, 100 years later, Jeremiah is preaching to the people, the kingdom of of Judah and the city of Jerusalem will once again be destroyed. And the leaders he's speaking against take him to kill him. And the elders stand up. And you know what they say? They say, didn't Micah preach? And didn't the king turn and God relent? And because of the mention of Micah, 100 years later, Jeremiah was saved. And I just thought to myself, you have no idea the good that you do tomorrow in someone's life, the good you do faithfully, doing the best you can, even a hundred years from now, the impact it will have. You have no idea. Even tonight when we do this, imagine the impact. The lives that are touched, that might touch lives for years to come. Folks, I just pray we don't become schizophrenic. There is a God. We will see his face. We will feel his love for eternity. But there is a God, and we will see his face. You have seen his face, some of you. Some of you haven't. Just open the eyes of your heart. Just humbly invite him in. And feel his love. And just do right and good.